Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 7, where we will be covering the whaler the Essex. Carmela, would you like to hear the story about the sinking of the whale ship Essex? Alex, I know I'm going to hear this story no matter what I say. (laughs) Yes, please. Yep, we're going to be here for a while. Because this isn't just the story of the Essex, this is the story of Alex's first cannibalism hyperfixation. The story of one woman's love for the tragic fate of a whale ship. I can't deny it, it's very true. I'd like to set the scene. It's the 22nd of December and a body is being butchered on a whale boat lost in the Pacific. Except it's actually 2013 and the whole thing is happening on television. For some reason, part of the BBC's Christmas programming that year was an adaptation of the Essex story called The Whale. That's festive. Exactly. I can remember the most visceral scene that actually made me feel slightly ill, with shots being crossed between a man cutting up meat and the butchery of a human body. This was Christmas! Don't know why it was there, but this was also my first encounter with survival cannibalism. So this whole thing began. It began with the whale... I'm assuming by point of release, my Essex-specific cannibalism collection will have made it onto Instagram. I've got a lot of resources about the Essex. I've got books of fiction, not including Moby Dick. I've got children's books. I've got the first-hand resources. I've got the two films. I've got analysis. And the two books that are going to be at the heart of today's podcast, all 18 hours of it, These are David O. Dowling's Surviving the Essex and Nathaniel Philbrick's In the Heart of the Sea. Here I've got to do a quick shout out to my friend Sarah. We went to go and see the In the Heart of the Sea film in Leicester Square in 2015. It's an astonishingly gorgeous film. But no, it's bad. It's bad. I don't really get on well with inspired by true events films. I like the facts. I like the stories to be true. And I'm not going to lie, we sat at the back of the cinema and fact-checked on our phones. (laughs) They got quite a lot wrong. In our defence, there wasn't actually anyone else in the cinema. (laughs) It was a commercial failure. So, if you couldn't tell, this is going to be a long one. I have a lot of thoughts and opinions, and you're going to hear all of them. You ready? Yeah! Let's go to Nantucket. It's 1819 at the island of Nantucket, which is a major whaling community in America. The whale ship is the Essex. And the cabin boy would later write that black and ugly as she is, I would not have exchanged her for a palace. 
the Essex had a reputation. She was a lucky ship, a happy ship, and an experienced one. Yeah. Irony. If there's one word to describe the story of the Essex, it's irony. Some of her crew were experienced. Her captain, first mate and boat steerers, also known as the Harpooners, had sailed on her before. She had a crew of 21. While some of these men were of whaling Nantucket stock, there were also off-islanders, men with little or no whaling experience, and in order to fill her berth, there were also seven black sailors who were signed on to work as well. Quotation. In a tight spot, a captain didn't care if a seaman was white or black. He just wanted to know he could count on the man to complete his appointed task. Yeah, that's fair. It does make a lot of sense. Despite this, there was a clear division in attitudes between natural-born Nantucket sailors, white off-islanders and black sailors. This will become clear. We have already mentioned, however, our three main players. They are Captain George Pollard, 29 years old, first mate Owen Chase, who's 23, and Thomas Nickerson, the cabin boy, who's 14. Not to spoil the ending of Who Survives, but we have the published works by Owen Chase and Thomas Nickerson. So they both die, right? Ghost written. I'm going to admit this outright. I'm a bit of a Captain George Pollard apologist. He has had a very bad reputation over the past few hundred years. <laughs> but you're going to set that to rights today on this influential podcast. Yes, I am. Because I don't think it's fair. Add on to that, there is this weird historical obsession with him having sex with his aunt. What? It just keeps coming up completely without evidence. And it's weird. Yeah. One of the fiction books, which is called The Jonah Man, spoilers if you know anything about the Bible, but <laughs> <laughs> they're just like, yep, yeah, well, I shouldn't be attracted to my aunt. I've not lost my virginity because I'm worried about getting venereal disease. But my aunt, who's 10 years older than me, wants to sleep with me. So we're going to do that. Why? No evidence. It's bizarre. It's, I mean, character defamation. He's been very dead by the time this book is published. Yeah. Strange one. There's also the fact that someone, Hollywood, has bought onto this, we need an underdog. So obviously the captain was entirely incompetent. The first mate was the only good sailor. And this sort of completely forgets about the fact that Pollard had served as second and first mate on the Essex. When he was made captain, he was one of the youngest whaling captains in Nantucket history. He hmm. was experienced. He was experienced with the Essex. He deserved the role given. I'm very defensive. So he's more a prodigy rather than a undeserving person yeah. taking on this I mean, he's role. definitely learnt the role. He might not be excellent as a captain. We will come on to this. But he's been very demonised in history. Also, probably because who's written the accounts? Are you hashtag Team Pollard or hashtag Team Chase? Let us know. <laughs> you know what the right answer is. As a first-time captain, he wasn't given the luxury of choice of crew. And Owen Chase was competent but cocksure. He was ambitious and impatient to become a captain himself. 
This can't have helped with it being Pollard's first command and Chase's first position as a first mate. Hmm. The journey does not start smoothly. They make it out of harbour on the 12th of August 1819 and I'm big enough to admit that Pollard got it very wrong when there was a storm on the 15th of August. He made the wrong call. The Essex was almost upended. He isn't doing well so far, actually, Alex. (laughs) After the Essex is righted, it's emerged that she's lost two of her whaling boats and damaged a third. Pollard wants to return to port, but Chase urges them to continue, and Pollard changes his mind and they continue at sea. Pollard was willing to listen, but a captain's word is supposed to be law. Despite this, they continue, the crew of the Essex take on more supplies and eventually manage to purchase a third whaleboat from a wrecked whaler. Symbolism and irony. Yeah, the cursed whaleboat coming aboard. The Essex went on her way, hunting whales and sailing around the coasts of South America and out into the Pacific Ocean. There were a few hiccups along the way. Henry DeWitt, one of the black sailors, deserted and Pollard wasn't able to replace him. There were challenges over the supply of food, which resulted in Pollard, who, according to Nixon, was generally very kind, putting the men in their place with the regards to their demands. However, the biggest hiccup comes in the Galapagos Islands in the October of 1820. The men were collecting tortoises as an emergency ration. That's what you do when you go to the Galapagos. You just... Hoard tortoises. Everyone knows that. Oh yeah, yeah. Very tasty. Mm, delicious. Endangered. Well, endangered <laughs> now. So they're collecting tortoises, and Thomas Chappell decides to play a prank. Now, when I was drafting the script, this next section simply read, Burning a whole fucking island. Jesus, guys, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny prank. Thomas Chapel burns Charles Island to the ground. It's still burning when the Essex sails away. Pollard is furious. His wrath knew no bounds. Later in life, Thomas Nixon will return to Charles Island and note that neither trees, shrubbery nor grass have since appeared. Can you imagine you're responsible for an entire island being just decimated. I'm gonna make it worse. Charles Island was one of the first Galapagos Islands to lose its tortoise population. Guys! Seriously! There's too much power for one ship to have. This was the key moment in the film In the Heart of the Sea. They were like, and they didn't even include the island. They didn't burn a whole island to the ground. Oh, I went to my gap yard. I burned a whole island to the ground, yeah. Thomas Chapel is English. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Can you tell? Oh, lads, lads. Dance. Cheeky Nando. Oh, yeah, I just went for some cheeky, cheeky tortoise. <laughs> Absolute madman, just burn the island. On the 20th November, 1820, the story will really begin. This is when the Essex is sunk by a whale. An 85-foot-long male sperm whale was coming down for the Essex with great clarity, according to Chase. There was only a skeleton crew left on the ship, and two of the boats were out hunting. It may have been the noise of repair work happening on ship that attracted the bull. 
This was the first time in recorded whaling history that a sperm whale had deliberately sunk a ship. Although not the first whaler to be sunk by whale, that was the Union in 1807, which accidentally hit a sperm whale. They're so small and difficult to spot. Difficult to navigate round. (laughs) I would love to know, do we have the statistics for how many whales they had caught up to this point? Is it more or fewer than the amount of men that die eventually as a result of this whale? Because I'm just trying to see who wins here. Is the tally more in favour of the whale or the men? Are we going one for one? I think so. They don't successfully get their first whale until 1820, which isn't great, because they set sail in the summer of 1819. I think ultimately the whales win, but not really. And also, may I point out, they've just completely eradicated a species of tortoise. (laughs) That's true. The tortoises are the real losers in this story. Sciencey bit. Sperm whales are noted biologically to turn to the direction the wind last blew when they're fleeing. Okay. So, head turned windward, tail pumping, and momentum blistering, that whale had the misfortune to run directly into the Essex hull. Because the story goes that the whale deliberately attacked the ship. Probably not. Oh, that's not as fun though. It was most likely one that was fleeing from the fact that they were being attacked. Now, there is a chapter in Surviving the Essex called A Whale's Motives that goes in... (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. It goes into far more scientific depth about how and why sperm whales behave in the way that they do. Here, when the Essex is sunk, we have our first controversy. Whether it could have been stopped. Nickerson and other authors, both fact and fiction, certainly believe so, believing that Chase could have saved the ship by killing the whale even at the expense of losing the rudder, because Chase was on board the Essex at this time Mm -hmm. and was a harpooner. He had opportunity to grab a lance and save the ship. In 1834, the Sailor's Magazine concludes that had Chase thrown a harpoon accurately, the rudder and the ship could have been saved. What do we know of Chase's aim? It's quite good. Okay. Chase never mentions this opportunity when he writes his account. Mm, no. A harpoon was not thrown and the Essex was lost. Two whaleboats returned from the hunt to the sinking Essex. Captain Pollard says, My God, Mr Chase, what is the matter? Very polite. And the response is, We have been stove by a whale. That whale. Bastard. That whale. Attempts were made to ready the whaleboats. The Essex was no longer a viable option. There were three whaleboats, one having been damaged by a whale during the hunt. These boats were clinker-built and very slight. They've certainly not for long dangerous open-water voyages. Sails were fashioned and the sides of the boats were built up to protect the 20 survivors from the elements. So we've got 20 survivors between two boats? Three. I thought the third one was damaged. It is. Oh, okay. I see. I see. 
Right, so <laughs> bad luck to the ones in that boat, huh? Who do you think's going to be on that boat? Oh, yeah. Items were retrieved from the Essex, including 600 pounds of unspoilt ship's biscuit, 65 gallons of fresh water per boat. How much is a gallon? Enough water? Well, no. I'm going to be safe to say no, it's not. Depends how long you need it for, I guess. Yeah. Muskets, gunpowder, boat nails and two pistols. Several of the tortoises and the hogs from the Essex swim out to the boats. Aww. Yeah, yeah. Good for the people. Bad choice on their behalf. Can you imagine being a pig? <laughs> and like you're on a boat and you get sunk and you're like swimming out to like poor pigs that is completely outside their normal realm of experience how would they comprehend what's happening i don't think they would sorry entirely different have you seen that photo of chickens in a swimming pool it's very weird no? chickens float do they yeah like a duck like a duck. Like a or tortoise. A, or a tortoise. <laughs> cool. In Pollard's own words, also retrieved, were a compass for each boat, a sextant for two boats, and a quadrant for one. But neither sextant nor quadrant for the third boat were collected. Yeah, it's just like, fuck those guys, huh? Yeah, and their shit boat. A decision now had to be made. Where the survivors were going next. The nearest islands were the Marquis Islands, 1,200 miles away. They're sort of off the coast of Chile to vaguely put us in the right bit of ocean. Right. Very far off the coast of Chile, in fact. In the middle of nowhere. Pollard says that we were so ignorant of the state and temper of the inhabitants that we feared we should be devoured by cannibals if we cast ourselves on their mercy. Oh, that delicious dramatic irony. That's, I love it when this happens in a story. I know these are real people. But even so, you know, I think that's what makes it a good story. There is going to be more irony. Pollard instead wanted to go towards the Society Islands. These islands could be reached in less than 30 days. The first and the second mates both argued against this, mightily afraid of the spectre of Pacific cannibalism. They instead said that it would take 60 days to make it to the coast of South America. The captain reluctantly yielded to their arguments, according to Nickerson's account. And again, in Chase's narrative of the sinking of the Essex, he completely fails to mention that he'd been the leading voice against Pollard's counsel. Hashtag Team Pollard. Of course, Pollard should have pulled rank and insisted he should have acted like an authoritarian captain rather than a democratic leader. The 20 men were divided into the three boats. Pollard took responsibility for his cousin, 18-year-old Owen Coffin, and his two young friends, Charles Ramsdale and Barzillai Ray, and three other sailors, only one of whom was African-American. This is Samuel Reed. Pollard had the majority of the Nantucket-born crew. Chase had five men, two Nantucketers and one black sailor. And in the third boat, led by second mate Matthew Joy, there were no Nantucketers. This third boat is the damaged boat. Right, yeah, I see what's going on there. So, the journey to South America begins. 
It was a necessity for the boats to stay together, because despite the difficulties, there wasn't enough navigational equipment. They had to stay together so they could make it to safety. For each member of the crew, daily rations were 170 grams of hardtack biscuit, a little bit of bread, and if they could catch fish. They did have a little food to supplement this ration, such as tortoises, which would be upended onto their shells and cooked alive. Poor boys. Even with this supplement to their diet, this was a starvation ration. And this isn't to mention the blistering heat, the lack of shelter, and less than half a pint of water a day. In the hot, hot sun. In order to soothe themselves, the men of the boats would dip themselves in the sea, although some were too weak to pull themselves back on board and had to be assisted. Rough waves, and this is something that we've covered before, would damage, salt and destroy food supplies. This is especially prevalent in Chase's boat, but this is perhaps because our two main sources, Chase and Nicholson, are in the same boat. Yeah. So it might just appear that this happens more to them because they are the ones who write it down. Do you want some more irony? Please. A week after the Essex went down, Pollard's whale boat was attacked by a whale. Oh, yes. <laughs> this isn't a sperm whale. This is a killer whale. Whales that are actually known for ramming and sinking wooden sailing yachts. It's going from bad to worse. Yeah, they really are losing to the whales now, I think. Yeah. Over the following weeks, the crews in the three boats worked their way through the food occasionally losing the other boats in the darkness, but always coming back together. The irony continues that they're actually quite close to the Society Islands by this point, but they're still heading to South America. Or at least they think they are. A month after the Essex sinks, land is spotted. This is Henison Island, and much to the relief of the crew, for the first time in a month they had solid land under their feet. Henison Island is empty. A desperate hunt for sustenance and shelter takes place. Over eight days, water, crabs, eggs and birds are found. On the first night, a feast is prepared by Captain Pollard and his steward William Bond for the men. No banquet was ever enjoyed with greater gusto or gave such universal satisfaction, according to Nickerson. This is a nice story so far. This is going well for them now. I'm so glad you said that. Even though they weren't discovered by the crew, on Henison Island, there were in fact eight skeletons. Ha! Yeah, hmm, maybe not so nice an island, huh? Who later were identified as Caucasian in origin, who had died of dehydration. I thought they found water on the island. They did. Well, these people didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to point that. I guess they didn't. <laughs> The food gathered wasn't enough. They certainly couldn't live on this island. And after seven days, they sailed again. Except without three of their number. Thomas Chappell, the English fire starter, and two other young sailors wanted to remain on Henison Island. They were given as much that could have been spared from the boats, and the three men were left, along with letters which were written by Pollard to be collected on the off chance that a ship passed Henison Island before the 17 men made land. Pollard gave his word that he'd have Chapel and his companions saved after his own rescue. Quite optimistic that they'll last that long from the sounds of it. I mean, they do have some water. There's a freshwater spring. 
Okay. As yeah. long as they don't set the island on fire again. I mean, it is Thomas Chapel. Do you want some more irony? Please give me that good, good irony. Henderson Island is part of the Pitcairn Group. Don't know anything about geography. <laughs> that means nothing to me. Have you heard of a little something called the Mutiny on the Bounty? Yes. The mutineers end up on Pitcairn. By 1820, there is an English-speaking community living in the Pacific on Pitcairn Island, the next island over the horizon. That is very, very unfortunate. Now, the crew of the Essex weren't to know this, but irony. The first death takes place on the 10th of January. The second mate, Matthew Joy, who had been ill for some time, was buried at sea. It later transpires that due to his illness, Joy hasn't been monitoring the provisions on the third boat. Oh. This is only found out when Pollard sends one of his men to take command of the third boat. There are only two or three days' supply of biscuit left in what's now Hendrick's boat. And then another loss. The loss of each other. The three boats are separated, with Hendricks and Pollard's boat staying together and Chase's boat becoming separated. Technically, this separation might explain the highest survival rate in Chase's boat, as Chase only had to keep his crew alive, while Pollard technically had responsibility for the third boat as well. Which had fewer rations. Which had fewer rations. And he shared with the third boat the little bread that was on the first. So here we have the division in narratives. We've now got two stories. Owen Chase's boat. On the 14th of January, there is an accusation of theft. Chase threatens to kill the guilty party should he do it again. Then they're attacked by a shark. (laughs) Wow, the sea really hates them, huh? I mean, fair. Yeah, they've done their fair share of attacking sea life. I do like here where they're like, the shark was so much larger than an ordinary shark. No, it probably wasn't. It's just closer. (laughs) They attempted to kill the shark, but they were all too weak to do so. Then they're followed by a pod of porpoises. So just to clarify, these are men trained in catching large sea life on a boat designed for that purpose with weapons designed for that purpose. I mean, I'm going to give them a bit of leeway here. They're starving to death. Yeah, okay, that's (laughs) fair. So they try and hunt these porpoises. It also fails. Peterson, who is the black sailor who'd attempted to steal bread, dies on the 20th of January, two months after the Essex sinks. He's buried at sea. During this time, Nickerson notes that Chase was a remarkable man. Chase himself writes that he was constantly rallying his spirits to enable himself to afford his men comfort. Hope alone wasn't enough to sustain Chase's men. 43 days after leaving Henison Island, Isaac Cole dies. The corpse is left in the boat overnight and preparations are made for burial the next day. Right, I'm thinking they're getting a bit hungry now though, huh? During these preparations, Chase stops his men. The painful subject of keeping the body for food was raised and they set to work as fast as they were able. The next paragraph is a bit gory. I mean, obviously. They cut off the arms and legs and removed the heart. Then they sewed up the torso and dropped it into the water. They ate the heart first. 
they cut up the rest of Isaac Cole's remains and hung in the rigging to dry. Mmm, delicious. According to Thomas Nickerson's account, he himself didn't eat from the body of Cole, and instead it was the extra rations of the dead men which allowed for his survival. Mmm, that sounds like doesn't want to implicate himself. It does a bit, doesn't mm. it? After a week of sustaining themselves from the body of Cole, Chase and his men were able to muster the strength to steer their boat. They saw a sail and they chased the ship. They were eventually rescued by the London vessel, the Indian, on the 18th of February. Chase had brought himself, Thomas Nickerson and Benjamin Lawrence safely out of the Pacific, 89 days of open water. So they haven't actually done too bad, not to be too hashtag team chase. But they've only had to eat one body. They have only had to eat one body. What of Pollard and Hendricks? Eight days after being separated from Chase, Lawson Thomas, one of the black sailors from Hendricks' boat, died. And the decision was made that the body would be consumed. It's unknown who did the deed, but it is worth noting that on whale ships, it was often the black members of crew who cooked and prepared the food. Right. It's a bit uncomfortable. The organs and meat of the corpse were cooked and shared between the two boats. This wretched fare sustained the crews, although due to starvation, Thomas's body might have only provided 30 pounds of meat. The next man to die was Charles Shorter, who was also a black sailor, and he was also shared between the two boats. As was the next, Samuel Reed. There is a very clear racial element to the survival chances of the Essex survivors. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about why? This may not have been malicious, or at least not intentionally. There have been studies undertaken regarding the differences between how different ethnic groups store and maintain body fat. Okay. This does tend to disproportionately favour Caucasian men in simply having larger reserves of body fat. Okay. Now, I'll stick the study in the show notes because I'm not a scientist! Don't feel very qualified to talk about it. But it does have to be noted that there are natural ties of kinship, religion, friendship, familiarity, especially between the Nantucket-born sailors, which would have been very advantageous in these circumstances. And there are no black survivors of the sinking of the Essex. And of course, if the Quakers in general consider themselves a pro-abolitionist faith from Nantucket, then the Nantucketers who survive maybe want to maintain that rather than admitting to perhaps if there was any ill-treatment there. There certainly does appear to be back in Nantucket an embarrassment over the fact that there were no black survivors. While the Essex was certainly controversial and not something that people would casually discuss down the pub, you're right, the Quakers were very proud of their pro-abolitionist movements. There's a whale ship that's entirely crewed by black sailors and they are given an immense parade down the highway of Nantucket town and they're entirely honoured for their works. This racial element is incredible incredibly uncomfortable for Nantucket to deal with and to deal with at the time it's worth mm. noting they're aware that it's not quite right 
On the night of January 29th, the first and the third boats were finally permanently separated. Obed Hendricks, William Bond and Joseph West and their boat were never seen again. What happened on Pollard's whaleboat on the 6th of February is still a matter of discussion and debate, with the two most recognised sources of the misadventure of the Essex, of course being written by Owen Chase and Thomas Nicholson, on another whaleboat. In Pollard's own words, recorded in 1823, two men died. We had no other alternative than to live upon their remains. These we roasted to dryness by means of fires kindled on the ballast sand at the bottom of the boats. When this supply was spent, what could we do? We looked at each other with horrid thoughts in our minds, but we held our tongues. I am sure that we loved one another as brothers all the time, and yet our looks told plainly what must be done. We cast lots. Now remind me, Alex, on this boat, is it Pollard and his nephew? Cousin. Cousin. Oh, I'm getting there. Are we going to get to your favourite phrase? We are going to get to my favourite phrase. Pollard's still talking. Don't interrupt. I'm sorry. (laughs) We cast lots. And the fatal one fell on my poor cabin boy. I started forward instantly and cried out, My lad, my lad, if you don't like your lot, I'll shoot the first man that touches you. The poor emaciated boy hesitated a moment or two. Then, quietly laying his head down upon the gunwale of the boat, he said, I like it as well as any other. He was soon dispatched and nothing of him left. I think then... Another man died of himself, and him too we ate. But I can tell you no more. My head is on fire at the recollection. The poor cabin boy was, as we've already commented, Owen Coffin, Captain Pollard's 18-year-old cousin. The question of drawing lots had first been raised by the youngest boy, Charles Ramsdale, and according to Nickerson, Pollard first reacted negatively, refusing to cast lots, But he did state, if I die first, you are welcome to subsist on my remains. But as Pollard was off to do on this journey, he allowed himself to be swayed. Owen Coffin drew the metaphorical short straw. In this instance, it was a scrap of paper. And Pollard is alleged to have offered to take his place. Who can doubt but that Pollard would rather have met the death a thousand times, wrote Nickerson. None that knew him will ever doubt. Lots were then drawn again for who would carry out the deed, and that straw fell to Ramsdale. Nantucket tradition said that Pollard drew the short straw and Coffin offered himself. But when this was reported in 1804, the source in fact states that he highly doubts this. It does appear to be part of scurrilous rumour. Yes, it's one of those, where would they get that information from? Exactly. You're right. It's time for my favourite survival cannibalism phrase. I feel like we should have some music for this. Drumroll, please. Because the death of Coffin and the consumption of his body by his cousin George Pollard is referred to as gastronomic incest. I told you there was an obsession with Pollard and incest. Yeah, his aunt, his cousin, God. This guy can't catch a break. He really can't. Or he is just that weird guy, huh? Dude! I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs)
The story is littered with inaccuracies and variants. For example, in Chase's account, Pollard doesn't offer himself to take Coffin's place. In Nickerson's, it's Pollard, not Ramsdale, who shoots Coffin. There is no solid source as to what exactly happened to Coffin's body. But the Essex Ballad, a great tune about cannibalism, Ooh, a banger, I'm not going to sing it, has lyrics that denote the common themes of survival cannibalism, the classic pattern of dismemberment. His messmates, they killed him and cut off his head, and all the ship's crew from his body did feed. Did fed? Did fed. People took liberties with these stories. Five days after the death of Owen Coffin, on the 11th of February, the third occupant of Pollard's boat, Barzillai Ray, died. Twelve days later, days of horror and despair, and almost at the Chilean coast, Pollard and Ramsdale resorted to cracking open the bones of their dead companions, extracting the marrow and clinging desperately to the bones. They clung to the bones so desperately that when, on the 23rd of February, they were happened upon by the Weller Dauphin, I don't know why I'm doing the French accent, I've not done any good accents throughout this entire recording. Unlike me, I've done nothing but good accents. Would you like to name the ship for me? Dauphin. Thank you. They could not bear to part from the last remnants of their salvation. They couldn't physically put the bones down. The captain of the... Dauphin? Was Zimmery Coffin. That's such a good name. What's his surname? Ah, I see. Oh, embarrassing. Commodore Charles Goodwin Ridgely, what a name, of the US frigate The Constellation said of Pollard and Ramsdale that their appearance bones working through their skins, their legs, their feet much smaller, and the whole surface of their body one entire ulcer was truly distressing. Not got very good grammar, but gets the point across. Yeah. The five men would be reunited on the whaler The Two Brothers, although only four of them would return to America together. Pollard suffered a relapse and returned two months after his crew. However... Before they made it back to Nantucket, rumours were swirling around the Pacific and the Atlantic. Stories were being spread from ship to ship. Nantucket had been waiting for the return of the Essex's captain, but when Pollard made land, there was utter silence. Not a figure spoke to him. People moved aside to let him pass. Of 20 men, there would be eight survivors. For while the third whale boat would never be found the three men left on Henison Island would be rescued. Oh. Yeah, you weren't expecting that, were you? No, I was completely, I was like, nah, they're gonna burn that island down and die. Well, I'm glad for them. And it was one of the first things that Pollard did was give word they needed to be rescued. Oh, good of him, okay. So, what comes next? For the most part, the men returned to sea, although the spectre of cannibalism remained above them some more than others. Pollard's aunt, understandably, never forgave him. Is this the same aunt that he was alleged to have an affair with? Yep. It's just, it's all awkward. And the rumours spread in later years that when asked if he knew an Owen Coffin, Pollard would say, I et him. <laughs> this is quite doubtful. Yeah, that sounds more like a fun story than anything else. 
This isn't even me being a paid-up member of the George Parr Defence Squad. This was the man who would fast every year on the anniversary of the loss of the Essex. It doesn't seem likely that he would be like, yeah, I ate him. Yeah, that's flippancy. Yeah, it's not quite. Pollard returns to whaling, and he returns as a whaling captain. In an extraordinary display of faith by the people of Nantucket, not only is he given a new command, but that command is of the two brothers, one of the ships that rescued the Essex men, and he gets that position on recommendation by her captain. So they clearly are on Team Pollard as well. They don't think that he's done anything wrong, necessarily. Yeah. He takes that command in the November of 1821. That's not a lot of turnaround. No, no, that's quick rebound. It doesn't end well. Wait, there's more. <laughs> there's more. Pollard is joined by Essex men on the two brothers. Thomas Nixon and Charles Ramsdale both join his ship. Charles Ramsdale is the one man who had come to know Captain Pollard better than any other. Sort of like, what better endorsement could there be that these men are prepared to sail under him again? Yeah, like, we survived for however long on a whaleboat together, but I still trust him. Which I think probably implies that Pollard didn't draw the short straw. Yeah, that Pollard didn't sacrifice his cousin. These men return to the whaling industry. They don't have to return with him. Mm. This next section is now just the George Pollard defence squad. We'll get back into plot in a minute. In 1822, midshipman Charles Wilkes meets George Pollard and he expresses how he could think of again putting his foot on board ship, to which... Pollard responded that it was an old adage that lightning never struck the same place twice. Oh, I don't like where this is going. In the February of 1823, the two brothers sinks. Oh, not on a whale. Not on a whale. Pollard almost refuses to leave deck of his second floundering ship. He's only persuaded to leave at the last moment. Later that year, Pollard considered himself truly ruined. All will say, I am an unlucky man, and he will never again command a whale ship. He ends up taking up the position of night watchman on Nantucket for the rest of his days. Okay, one last line from the George Pollard defence squad. Go ahead. Uh, this is again from Charles Wilkes, who, after meeting Pollard, stated that he felt that I had by accident become acquainted with a hero who did not even consider that he had overcome obstacles which would have crushed 99 out of 100. George Pollard Defence Squad. An objective podcast, objectively presenting these stories. No biases here. None. <laughs> Omen Chase goes on to work on the first and thus the most widely recognised account of the sinking of the Essex, although it's highly doubtful he wrote his narrative himself. It was a ghost-written account under his advice. So it was ghost-written. <laughs> I put that joke very early in, but it's paid off now. Chase's Essex narrative is a personal affair in which his own detrimental actions wouldn't be uncovered until Nickerson's account was discovered 163 years later. Ooh, that is a long publishing embargo. It was lost. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, with some of these journals, the embargoes they impose, you could believe it. I mean, that's fair. 
Now, Chase's account didn't really endear himself to the residents of Nantucket. The depth and honesty regarding cannibalism left a sort of bitter aftertaste in Nantucket memory. And while Chase would go on to rise to the position of captain, he wouldn't sail on a Nantucket ship for 11 years. Ultimately, however, he'd never recover from the Essex. At the end of his life, he would hoard and hide food around his home and would spend time in and out of asylums until his death. I think that's understandable. I mean, that's it's an ordeal to go through. Yeah. To this day, it's Owen Chase who's provided us with the definitive voice of what happened in the Pacific. Thomas Nickerson's account was also written, but not until 1876 and it was then subsequently lost until 1960. It was then only published in 1984. Now, does that coincide at all with the resurgence in anthropological interest in cannibalism. Ah! Whether that caused the resurgence or whether the resurgence means that people were like, ah, this book I've got lying in the attic is quite useful, actually. I'm not sure, but it does make sense. It's all sort of coming together. Connecting all these dots. (laughs) Nickerson's account gives us this alternative dimension, adding layers and questions to Chase's account. It's worth noting that allegedly Pollard also wrote an account, but if it exists, it's not been found. It's in an attic in Nantucket somewhere, and I want it. And you will find it. I will find it. I hate to think how long I've been talking for now, but very quickly, I do have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, or the white whale in the ocean. Oh, isn't it good? So... Moby Dick. Moby Dick was written in 1851 by Herman Melville, and I'm not going to lie, I've never managed to finish it. I had to read Pierre and the Ambiguities in two weeks for my master's degree. Me and Melville have taken an indefinite leave from each other after that. Moby Dick is the definitive whaling story, and it's one that skirts around the accepted traits of survival cannibalism at sea. This was considered normal in maritime communities, but Moby Dick looks at the events of the Essex dead in the eye as it tells its story. Right, I promise I'm wrapping up now, but we do have a very quick shout-out to the Anne Alexander which is another whaling ship. This is a whaling ship that is sunk by sperm whale in 1851. So this is a common occurrence, huh? (laughs) Well, more than once. More than once. It has happened. Herman Melville went into absolute overdrive following the loss of the Anne Alexander. No loss of life, no cannibalism. Very quiet, really. And he took the loss of the Anne Alexander as a review. This is what Melville said. Ye gods, what a commentator is this Anne Alexander Whale. What he has to say is short and pithy and very much to the point. I wonder if my evil art has raised this monster. May I just say, Herman Melville, shut up. Get over yourself. (laughs) If we see any cannibalism stories in the news i hope we won't be big-headed enough to think that our evil art has raised that monster because of this podcast especially because i just i can't believe that a sperm whale has read a book (laughs) (laughs) 
thank you for joining us for today's episode on the whale ship Essex. Let us know, are you hashtag Team Pollard or hashtag Team Chase? Hashtag Team Pollard. We know, Alex, we know. Join us next time for an episode on the Minionette, a landmark legal case that is less boring than it sounds, I promise. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network. <laughs>